Yeah, all right. We're going to have a nice, quick intro to the QTR podcast today. How the hell is everybody? Good, great, grand, wonderful. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. You guys are the financial engine behind the podcast. I do not put advertisements in the middle of any podcast. Yes, I do talk in the beginning. You can fast forward through it. There are ways around it. One thing I don't do, which I hate and will never do, I hate when I listen to podcasts, is put shit in the middle of podcasts. So once you get going with the interview, then you hear only the interview. But uh, at the beginning and at the end, I will shout out my patrons. That's just the way things are going to work. If you don't like it, you should listen to a different podcast. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to listen to another podcast instead of listening to this podcast effective immediately. With that being said, hello, I do want to sh- thank you for being here. I do want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been patrons of the podcast now for quite some time. They are the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion. They turn around orders very quickly. They have great inventory and stock. And best of all, they have the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com who is available to QTR podcast listeners. If you don't feel like going on the website, you don't feel like rooting through the inventory, maybe it's your first time buying gold and silver bullion and you just have some questions, just email Laura for a personalized touch over at JM Bullion. Folks, these people have been in business for nearly a decade. They have done over $3 billion in sales. Like I said, my orders ship the same day that I order them, which I love Packaging is discreet. Things are always, I've never had an issue getting anything sent uh, to any location. And uh, they're just great people to do business with. And that's why, uh, in addition to the fact that they support the podcast, but the primary reason I only choose to do business with them and even let them support the podcast is because they are wonderful to do business with. JM Bullion, the link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus who have the Steam Room. The Steam Room is a wonderful piece of software that helps you track illiquid, I'm sorry, helps you track flow money as we call it, I'm learning. Gonna fuck the script up. Hang on, let me sip some coffee. Maybe that's the problem. All right, we'll try that shit over again. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have a beautiful piece of software. It's called the Steam Room. What does it do? The Steam Room helps track money coming into the options market, which many times can help you find uh, or precede moves in the equities market. Obviously, this can be a very lucrative piece of software if not used like a total herb. Uh, it has been in works for a decade now almost. These guys have been working with this piece of software, making it better, improving it, improving the interface, adding features. If you want to read tape, if you're interested in market psychology, if you want to follow the big money, which is actually a strategy, you know, before the Nigerians were out selling uh, option books and before, uh, you know, other services were offering unusual options activity. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were using the Steam Room to do exactly that. They are the originators, one of the originators of this strategy. And uh, their piece of software is second to none. Better than that, they will let you try it 30 days for free. Check out the link in my podcast description for the Steam Room. Reach out to at Options Jesus or at Sang Lucci. Tell them QTR sent you. Tell them you want a free trial. No bullshit, no nonsense. They'll make sure that you get taken care of. They're close personal friends of mine. Let them know that I sent you, 
and everything will be fine. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy Pete Hedgetus, who runs what I would say is one of the better day trading services. This is a service where you're going to be provided with daily watch lists. You're going to be provided with, you know, commentary and a community on the go. Okay? So this service is called uh, the fucking, um, oh, Pete, you're going to kill me. It's so early this morning. I can't do it. This service is called um, the Trader's Path is what it's called. Fuck me. Well, you know what, Pete? The good thing is you're actually getting a longer uh, advertisement here by virtue of the fact that my brain isn't fucking turned on yet. But the Trader's Path offers investor education. They offer, uh, like I said, daily watch lists and scans. And it's a great piece of software if you're an active trader. So, uh, you know, if you're at the computer all day and you're looking to surround yourself with a community, they trade red markets, green markets, stocks, options. There's nothing really that Pete doesn't do. And, uh, and so it's great to have a community around you in those types of situations. And the Trader's Path is run by an honest guy who started his service because he got tired of the nonsense and bullshit of other services, dubious services, services who, if they paid me a million dollars, I wouldn't fucking advertise for him on my podcast. So I do take character into the equation when I think about who I'm going to have to fucking shout out at the beginning of every podcast. And that's why I'm happy to endorse and shout out uh, Pete and Lucci and Wall Street Jesus and all these guys. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground Traders for a Cause, uh, my buddy Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, some of my new patrons like the Mad King of Metals is in the house, David Barker is in the house, Sam Doolittle, Dan Martin, and Brittany Guidel. Thank you so much, I. Jones and Mr. Q. I appreciate your generous contribution. Gregory Endress, Zach Hansen, Tony A., Forrest Hendricks, Chase the Disgruntled, Jimmy John's Driver, John Guthrie is still in the house. Thank you very much. And some patrons that have been with me now for a minute, getting there, getting getting to be on uh, you know, the second or third page of the list, like Igor K and Marcos M, Brian Kilgannon, Jordan Weaver, thank you for sticking with me. Chris Bott, what is up? Finally, M55, Government Cheese still with me after a minute. Steve Matthews, Matt Ritchie, Austin, and Duke Matlock, thank you guys so much. Everybody that's checked in on PayPal, you guys keep me going. I appreciate you guys very much. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not a financial advisor. I am not licensed to say anything, to do anything involving finance. I'm just a regular guy speaking with an open mind, trying to create some dialogue and discourse about some things that they don't seem too fucking keen to talk about on financial news. And so that's why I'm here. I'm a product of financial news. Like when Jack Nicholson falls into the acid in Batman, and he said, you dropped me into that vat of acid. You created me. You know, well, CNBC, you created me. Blah, 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 Having trouble talking this morning. It's going to be a good one. I have with me now a guy who speaks more clearly and concisely than I did during my intro today, and who's generally much smarter than me, and a genial, lovable character who now has something like 3 trillion YouTube subscribers. He has blown <laughs> past me on the podcasting highway. He's a great-looking guy. He's a business success. Uh, I'm just basically jealous of the man George Gammon. What's, what's going on, dude? I'm happy to have someone back! 
to the QTR podcast, as you would yeah, say. Yeah, that's right. What's that's going right. on? Oh, that was a fantastic intro. Thank you. I you you should have heard how bad I, I fucked up all the stuff in front of it. <laughs> well, you got my part perfect. <laughs> <laughs> how are you? I'm doing well. I'm extremely well. I'm getting ready to head out to the Bitcoin conference this weekend in Miami, which I'm looking forward to. I think it's going to be a really fun time. You're going and to the Bitcoin weekend, conference? Yeah, yeah. And then next weekend, I've got... Actually, on uh, Thursday, I speak at the Money Show in Orlando. Oh, cool. So if any of your listeners are going to be there, make sure you say hi. And then uh, the following weekend, the 11th through the 13th, I've got Rebel Capitalist Live, my investment conference in Miami. And then after that, I'm going to Belize uh, to speak at a real estate investment conference down there. How fucking cool is it that you're speaking at the Money Show? I mean, that's like... Peter Schiff's staple. He's he was always at the Money Show every single year, and then you just kind of like burst out of nowhere over the last two years, and now you're speaking at the Money Show. Isn't that isn't that cool? You know, yeah, yeah, and it's surreal. And I got a text the other day from the gentleman that runs the New Orleans uh, conference. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's another one that I think that's been around for like forty years, and Schiff always goes to that one. And they asked me if I'd I'd speak there this year, and I believe it's October. And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd be honored to. And then they asked me if I'd do a panel discussion with Brent Johnson and Jim Grant. That's fucking awesome. That's like, awesome. That kind of threw me for a loop there, you know, because obviously Jim Grant, I mean, and Brent Johnson as well, but but Jim Grant, I mean, that's he's just an icon, a he's legend. He's a legend. And I, I have so much respect for that guy, and he's one of the first people that I really started to listen to back in 2012 when I retired, when I really got into investing and macro. So, you know, hopefully that comes to fruition. Um, I can't wait. It's it, but it's it's very surreal. Yeah, that's pretty cool. There's Jim Grant. I think is about as legendary as it gets. And yeah, for sure. It's been really cool to just watch you just hit hyperdrive in terms of like your popularity and seeing you on, uh, you know, other places uh, on the web too. Now as a guest too, which is awesome um, because when I'm searching for content that I'm enjoying myself, you've started to pop up on other people's podcasts and stuff that I listen to. And in yeah. addition to the resounding success that you have had i mean you are you're on like peter schiff levels in terms of like youtube subscribers and in terms of just uh hitting hyperdrive and making a name for yourself and it's just it's just very cool because uh i really like you i you know i think you're a nice guy i think you're a smart guy and it's been awesome to just watch your success and it and it hasn't taken long you know it's been like two years and certainly of course i want to thank you for a continuing to you know come back on my podcast but b also for your continued support for rebel capitalist pro continuing to support the podcast which uh, i yeah, appreciate immensely and my listeners do too yeah well i don't want to continue the ass kissing too long but uh you know i'm a huge <laughs> fan of qtr and i just love being associated with the brand and everything you're all about yeah especially the uh the heavy drinking and the degeneracy and things like that Let's talk Especially about that. <laughs> let's talk about the cesspool 
that public markets have become. I mean, actually, before we talk about that, why don't we take a little trip down memory lane? Because it was a while ago that um, I was on your podcast last year when mm-hmm. Twitter banned Zero Hedge for publishing the article suggesting that the Wuhan Institute of Virology could perhaps be involved in uh, the coronavirus outbreak, which back then Mm -hmm. you and I were discussing. I mean, this was, I think, March 2020. Um, And one of the things I've said since then is you don't need to be some insane conspiracy theorist to think that the idea that a level four biolab just miles from the alleged site of the outbreak of this virus uh, may be something that people might want to look into or possibly, this is like if Occam's razor, you know, was on like, you know, hyped up on like crack cocaine. Like this is, this is as Occam's razor as you could get, right? <laughs> this is fucking like this, the, 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 the cause and effect is, is literally just grabbing you by the neck and shaking the shit out of you at this point, you know, level four bio lab right there, you stupid motherfuckers, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. here we are today. Fauci's emails have come out and this has hit the public discourse and man, I'd love to get your reaction on all of that. Well, I look at it from a 30,000 foot level and it's not just with what you were referring to specifically. Because let me, let me say it, something real quick. Let me interrupt you real quick. Because you were one of the – I just wanted to also add, you were one of the first people to to discuss this and to talk about COVID and coronavirus and early on how big of a deal and an impact it was going to have yeah. before the markets reacted. There was only a small group of us that thought that it was – and you had the foresight to bring me on and discuss this. And, and that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead. Give me your reaction. Yeah, the first video I did was January, end of January 2020 on uh, on COVID. And I was talking about the R naught value and, you know, how quickly it was spreading and say, hey, listen, guys, you know, this, we don't know what this is. This is something that we might want to pay attention to. And if this does play out um, the way some are saying, then, you know, it's going to hit the United States and it's going to hit the economy and we're going to have martial law. We could go into a police state type of situation. And unfortunately, uh, that's pretty much exactly uh, what happened. But, um, you know, that was very difficult back then because I remember going on your podcast as well uh, after we had uh, discussed what was going on with Zero Hedge. And, you know, we were trying to think through what is the appropriate action. And this might have been March or April, something like that. And back then you just had so little data that you, you just you just didn't know and I remember really debating with myself as to what the appropriate action was and I just fell back on my principles of being a libertarian and I said you know I don't know how this is going to play out I don't know how bad or not bad this is but one thing I do know is the government should not be involved uh, they should give us the data and they should leave the decision making up to the individuals and the individual business owners. And I think that, um, you know, if I if I did one thing right, that was probably it. Just sticking to, to having a principled uh, position. But going back to your original question, I think if you look at the quote unquote conspiracy theories that we've had uh, 
since 2019 when I started the podcast and the YouTube channel, a lot of those things have come true. So you've got to ask yourself, when is a conspiracy theory, when does it become a conspiracy fact? And if a lot of these conspiracy theories are becoming conspiracy fact, you would think that the mainstream media would start paying a little more attention to those people or those ideas that might be on the fringe, but they're not. And right. I, I just, it, it's unbelievable to me. You know, when you were talking about the, the Wuhan lab, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, central bank digital currencies. And I was talking about a Fed coin way back in 2019. I'm sure you were as well. A lot of people were in the space. And we were completely dismissed as tinfoil hatters. And that we were fear-mongering and it was uh, sensationalizing and using hyperbole and all these things. And now you turn on Bloomberg and Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen are sitting there talking about how they need a central bank digital currency or how they're uh, considering it. You know, they're not calling it FedCoin yet, but that's pretty much the direction they're going. And a lot of other things that we discuss, you know, people say, oh, that will never happen in the United States. That will never happen in the United States. Yeah, but go back to 2019. And if I would have asked anybody, even me, if I would have asked myself back in 2019, would the United States lock everyone in their house, not allow them to leave, and force businesses to close down? I remember, Chris, in fact, listening to your podcast when you, or maybe you did this on Twitter, when you asserted that the Japanese may cancel the Olympics, yeah, and everyone just tore you a new one. They threw you under the bus. They're saying, "Yo, you're being an idiot. You're being a moron. You're, you're, you're fear mongering. You know, tinfoil. That's never gonna happen. Never gonna happen." Boom. Like two weeks later, or three weeks later, they go ahead and announce it, and all these things that that just. I mean, now we look back and it kind of seems standard, but I remember in 2020, you know, February, March, thinking about them canceling Major League Baseball. Yeah. And, and, and that, was a, that was, even then, to me, that was inconceivable. Like that just, there's no way that could happen. Like that's just too much, that's just too much of a shift. That's too extreme. Um, but sure enough, you know, there it happens. So... Anyone who kind of disputes like the idea of the World Economic Forum or the IMF, you know, trying to have economies uh, that are more centrally planned and maybe have a, a global central planning unit, um, you know, they're saying the same thing about that. But these are the same people that back in uh, 2019, I guess, and into 2020 would have said that there's no way they're ever going to cancel the Olympics right. or Major League Baseball or whenever going to go into a police state type of situation in the U.S. So I think it's a much bigger question than just what's happening with um, with Wuhan. You know, going back to Fauci, I mean, this guy, and I'm sure he's in a very difficult position, but he's and he's not the only one. I don't I don't want to single him out. But all of these quote unquote health authorities have have just contradicted themselves nonstop. I mean, and at so at, at what point do people just completely dismiss 
what they're saying. I mean, how many times uh, can you cry wolf before, you know, people just are like, okay, we've had enough, you know. Uh, first they come out, and I was reading one of his emails, uh, I think it was posted on Twitter, where he was telling a personal friend that there's no way they should wear masks. And if you, and if you remember back to, I, I, I don't know the exact date, but I believe it was in March, he was saying uh, that no, masks don't work. In fact, they could be counterproductive and all of these things. And then sure enough, a month later, you've got to wear a mask for sure, for sure, for sure. And then three months later, you've got to wear two masks. <laughs> and six months later, you got to wear 10 masks. And then after, yeah, and then after we got the vaccine, you had to wear four masks. Like, oh, all right, you know, and then... It just it just became clear it was one of those situations not unlike finance and central banking where it behooves people to get informed and make some decisions on their own instead of just you know eating up what the government hands to them yeah. um, because you realize and I've said this a million times the people in the government are lovely people right great people family and friends of all of us right but they're not you know, they don't have superpowers. I always say Jerome Powell doesn't have superpowers. He doesn't know what's going to happen to inflation tomorrow, just like we don't know what's going to happen to inflation tomorrow. I mean, they can forecast whatever, but, you know, they've never forecasted anything successfully, and, and it's always hindsight. And the Fauci emails reveal that they're, you know, look, like you said, he got swamped. The guy got crushed. It was a pandemic. He's, you know, the highest paid government employee that deals with this type of stuff. He's going to be the uh, the intersection where everybody runs through. I understand he was dealing with a lot of stuff. But if one thing has become clear, it's that the definitiveness with which he has, de you know, delivered the message to people um, didn't really seem to. And it, it put this whole Rand Paul thing in context over the last couple months where Rand Paul has said to him, you know, you're wearing a mask even though you're vaccinated. You know, why? You know, isn't it just theater at that point? And when that happened, I was like, yeah, he kind of has a good point. Now, after reading the emails, I'm like, man, well, he fucking nailed it. You know, like he absolutely nailed it. So, I, you know, the sooner I think people realize that the government doesn't always have the best answer right away or really sometimes ever. And the sooner people realize it's better to think for themselves, uh, I think the better off they're going to be. And that's, you know, that's what we were guilty of, right, George, in early 2020. We were guilty of thinking for ourselves when I said the Olympics were going to be canceled. Go back and read the replies to that tweet. Go back and, you know, when I was oh, hoarding I masks. You just got crucified. Oh, got dude. Crucified. When I was hoarding masks in January and, you know, buying ammunition, I mean, I was just being absolutely railed on on twitter and then here we are yeah. six months later you can't buy any masks you can't buy any ammunition you can't buy food you can't <laughs> buy toilet paper you know and it's not as though uh, you know i i don't give a shit about being right i think more important is the message that people understand like hey you know you gotta you gotta look out for you you gotta take responsibility for your own actions but you also need to look out for yourself and make your own decisions. And this falls under a bigger question of government, right? Do you think yeah. big government... Think, Go ahead. I think the overarching uh, point there also is people need to keep an open mind and they need to use critical thinking. And um, without that, we, we've got big, big problems. You know, uh, I, I I don't want to take it off on too much of a tangent here, but when I... It's your interview. You can do whatever well, you want. Probably... Uh, 
what was it now, maybe two months ago or something, I was supposed to go down to Puerto Rico for six months and uh, and hang out there. And I was in Arizona and I was in Puerto Rico for 24 hours and I had to leave immediately. I mean, the 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 restrictions there were so draconian right. and you had these curfews of 10 o'clock and you had, uh, you know, cops on every corner making sure that you're wearing a mask and doing all these things. And I thought, whoa, 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 this is, this is an actual police state. This is martial law. Right. And I, and this is not worth any amount of money. So I left immediately, went to Florida, but I was really grappling with what the hell is going on here? Like what, like how are people, not up in arms, like saying, no, you know, we right. understand that there's a health issue, but you're not going to lock us in a damn cage. No, they're and just I, okay with it, George. They're just, they're just fucking fine with it. Yeah. And then you come to Florida and it's just, it's, it's wide open. I mean, no one's wearing a mask everywhere. And then you got to ask yourself the question, okay, well, th there's not body bags lining the streets here. So what, where's, where's the big disconnect? And then it kind of takes you down this rabbit hole of human psychology. Right. So what I did is I really tried to go back and re-listen. I've got the audio book. I re-listened to Road to Serfdom by Hayek. And then I tried to go back and uh, run a pod. I mean, I can't say this on YouTube, but I run a podcast. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. But I, I tried to go back and and studied Nazi Germany in the early 1930s to see how that played out. Like, how, you know, and because we believe that during this era that like 90% of the Germans were, you know, backing the Nazi party. And that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, when Hitler won, I believe it's in 1933 or so, he won with like a 37% vote. Right. It's just that they had like you know three or four other people running, so he had the the majority out of the group. And then what the they did as far as the people that were in charge of the propaganda is they kind of had a three pronged approach. And first and foremost, what they tried to do is they tried to convince people in the general public that they didn't need critical thinking. In fact, they tried to kind of downplay it. Like it wasn't really important. And what they tried to replace it with was the, the ultimate, uh, you know, the ultimate was how you feel. <laughs> it was all about your feelings. Hey. And so we need to set thought aside. That's not really important because at the end of the day, you know, we're all emotional human beings. So let's put the priority on how you feel. How does this make so you So the feel? fear can make the decisions, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and then you, you, I'm kind of reading that and obviously uh, the the bells are going off in your head comparing that to what we've been seeing over the past uh, probably 10 years with here in the United States. It's the exact same um, MO that, yep. that, we, that we want you to abandon critical thinking and we want you to feel everything to the point where our language has even changed. And Chris, I don't know how old you are. I think you're a lot younger than I am. But I'm 48 years old. I was born in 1973. Wow, I am a and lot I, younger than you are. Yeah, I, re I remember <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, you know, let's say even in the 1980s. And even in the 1990s, I didn't really 
notice this until the early 2000s. When anyone said something that was a, a statement of thought, they would always say, I think. So, let, Chris, let's say you and I are driving in a car and we're trying to figure out how to get to the local bar, right? And I, I would say, Chris, I think we need to take a left here. And then you would say, eh, I don't know, man. I think we need to take a right. But you'll notice what people say now. They never use the term, I think. They always use the term, I feel. You know, Chris, I feel like we should take a left up here. No, George, I feel like we should take a right. And notice that whenever you're listening to uh, the news or you're listening, especially to a millennial, you'll notice they, they say, I feel like every, every three minutes that's coming out of their mouth. And I don't know that that is or isn't intentional by the, the, the global elite. I, I don't know, you know, the school system, I don't know if that was uh, purposeful. And the reason I say that is because if you look at Nazi Germany, that's exactly how, I don't know if they use the language that way, but that's exactly how they did. That was step number one. Then number two, you integrate that philosophy into the school system. And one of the main ways that you do that is through the media. So prior, like in the early 1930s, it was almost impossible for the average German to have a radio because they were so expensive. So one thing they did is they engineered a very inexpensive radio. And they did that because they wanted every single German household and every single classroom to have a radio. Right. And then what they did is they take over the, uh, the radio stations. Now, they didn't just take them over like socialism or communism where they take over the means of production. There were private entities that owned the majority of the radio stations, I think maybe 60%, 70%. But the, the Nazi party controlled or had a huge amount of influence over the private entity or individual that actually did own the radio station. And they never just, in the, especially in the early and mid-1930s, they didn't come out and blatantly uh, you know, beat you over the head with this. It's, it's not like the only thing you could listen to on the radio was some Hitler speech, right? They had entertainment. They had plays. They had music. They had all of these things that you would expect to hear on the radio, but they just would kind of integrate the Nazi message into right. everything. Now, that became more extreme in the late 30s, but another thing I found fascinating with the media is I read stories in the mid, about the mid-30s where people would go to the local movie theater, just your average you know, uh, group of Germans, and the, and the movie owner would report to the guy that was in charge of propaganda for the Nazi party because what they would do is they'd say, okay, you're doing this movie that's a comedy or something like that. We want you to include, you know, some Nazi propaganda at the, you know, five times throughout the, the movie. And uh, then the movie theater owner would report 
to the propaganda person and tell them kind of how it went, what what the crowd's response to it was, right. right? And I thought I found it fascinating that the majority of the time the crowd's response was laughter. Like even if it was a very serious movie, when they when they did the part, you know, that, that you could tell was kind of obviously uh, propaganda. Everyone would just start laughing because they thought it was so ridiculous because of how blatantly obvious the propaganda was. Right. And they're just like, come on, guys. Can I just sit down and watch a movie <laughs> without getting this Nazi propaganda? You know? And and so they would laugh about it. And then the movie owner or the theater owner would tell the propaganda guy. And then he would tell Hitler. And then that would piss him off. You know, that people were responding that way to this obvious propaganda. And it just goes to show you that even back then, the you know, the majority of uh, of Germans did not favor this, and they thought it was completely absurd, and that it was ridiculous. And you think, and you, then you juxtapose that to today, and like, when's the last time you watched a Star Wars movie? Right? It's it, they're impossible to watch now because it's 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 nonstop propaganda and virtue signaling. You know, it's it's not about entertainment anymore. It's just about how much they can virtue signal. Yeah, it, it's, right? it's like award shows are the same way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And now corporations are, are starting to do that. And you'll notice, especially corporations that are these Davos types, you know, where the CEO rubs elbows with Klaus Schwab and the people at the IMF and a lot of these uh, hedge fund guys. But you see that playing out today uh, in the United States, and then the third thing that they needed to, um, you know, control people and to get people into this these tribal spirits, they needed a boogeyman, and we all know who that boogeyman was. And uh, you know, today, uh, who is the boogeyman? I mean, I'll leave that up to your audience to decide. But the one thing that I can tell you is, if you study history, uh, you can see that the the people in charge the pol and so who is that you know that the politicians uh, on the right and the left but especially on the left and a lot of these CEOs like Mark Benioff with Salesforce these guys that have just completely uh, drank the Klaus Schwab or W uh, World Economic Forum Kool Aid um, you know the IMF types uh, the Davos types that we're referring to these are kind of the global elite that are uh, just blatantly pushing this and trying to move society in, into a world and into, a, uh, into an ideal, uh, into their ideal vision of how people should behave. And ironically, it goes right back to central planning and it goes back to Marxism as well. And, uh, you know, this is what I think people need to really be aware of. Now, are their intentions malicious or are their intentions good in the sense that they truly believe that this is the way to move society forward? But they're just I would just have severe disagreements with them. You know, again, I'll leave that up to your audience to decide. And I'm not saying that these people are Nazis. Don't get me wrong. I want to be very clear. But what I am saying is that intentionally or unintentionally, they're using the exact same means and methods that the Nazi party used in the 1930s. 
Well, and the funny thing, too, is that I really don't think that people want to be indoctrinated. I think at the end of the day, when they realize they're being indoctrinated, they turn away from it, which is why you see like the ratings on the award shows and things like that collapse. Um, I, I think, but I think there's this groove, there's this sweet spot where people just feel as though they're being told the truth and then they're doing the right thing accordingly, even if that is just being scared shitless. Uh, where they're just willing participants. They never step out of the box. They never question critically what they're being told and why they're being told it. They're just happy to, you know, go along and be one of the, you know, one of the useful idiots. And right, you, you right, see these right. people, I see them when I'm out in the city because, you know, in Pennsylvania, we're starting to relax the mask mandates. And so you have some wonderful businesses like Wawa who, I can't sing the praises of enough that have posted on the front doors of their establishments. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, And if you haven't been vaccinated, wear a mask, which is fine because it leaves open. People basically can do whatever they want for the most part. They're not checking whether or not you've been vaccinated. Um, And then you have other establishments in the city where, you know, I pretty much walk into everywhere I go. Well, I do walk into everywhere I go without a mask now. So, you know, I feel out. Uh, initially like what what's the environment going to be like here if i go in without a mask um if i go somewhere where i know masks are required at least to go sit down at you know the bar or something then you know i have to wear the mask i don't want to piss anybody off it's not that i agree with it it's that i'm you know trying to get to where i'm going and and the ends justify the means but i frequent businesses that don't require me to wear the mask more than ones that do like I go to the you know the sub shop down the street from me where I know nobody gives a shit whether or not I'm wearing a mask. I go to Wawa instead of going to the CVS across the street because I know at Wawa no one gives a shit if I'm not wearing a mask. And right. But I still see it's an interesting experiment to see the initial reaction of people when you walk in somewhere without a mask on because if you do it in certain places, if you do it – you know, I'll give a shout out to uh, my friends over and whether or not they want this or not. I'll give my shout out to, to, <laughs> to my friends at Cafe Olay at Third and Arch because they seem pretty cool with it when I was in there a week or two ago without a mask on. But there's other coffee shops in the area where I walk in or there's a pharmacy and an art store in the area, all of which when I walked in, it was like a four alarm emergency where some 18-year-old hurriedly rushes out from behind the counter with a mask, you know, oh, and you know, diving is, oh, oh my diving god, diving at you just yeah. in the air reaching out with his right hand, sir. No. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like they're jumping in front of the president getting ready to take yeah. a bullet, yeah, you know, exactly. with, with that same <laughs> intensity. And and there's a there's another coffee shop where that happens to the extent where I know if I don't have a mask, I I'm just going to be taking inventory of how long it takes them to get from behind the counter out to me because I'm not going to walk in and then turn around and rush out when somebody's like, you don't have a mask, you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I went to this art store at uh third and market a couple of weeks ago, just cause I needed to get a pad, a sketch pad. That's it. I just want to walk in and get a sketch pad and leave. And, uh, and I walked in and, and, you know, this guy who young kid you know rushes up to me and he gotta have a mask on ah! i said all right all right i actually had a mask in my book bag so i put one on 
And then I started to go about my business. He's like, he's like, ah, oh, it's not covering your nose. I say, you know what? I'm fucking leaving. I turn around. I said, you know, it's very nice. You know, I appreciate your concern, Mister Nineteen-Year-Old Art Student that doesn't know shit about anything at all. You know, I appreciate your concern for my well-being, but uh, but that's you know, and this is also I tweeted about I, you know, maybe about two months ago. When I or a month ago, I, I went and saw an old friend of mine at a restaurant that he manages in the city, and uh, and I was sitting there without a mask. So he didn't need a mask at the table, and he comes up to me and and I said, "Holy shit, man! Good to see you. It's been a long time, you know, and it had been years." And he didn't say anything other than, "Did you get vaccinated?" Just like that. And I said, "No, wow. I didn't." I said, "And how are you?" You know, he's like, "When I I, I got my first shot today, you know, man, and I'm going for the second shot next week." Okay, like, how are you? What's going on? Do you remember me from years ago? Remember that time we drank all that Jack Daniels and went to a concert together? Like, does life exist outside whether or not you've been vaccinated? And I said to him, you know, if you've been vaccinated, I said, well, what are you worried about? You know, he because he was like pushing me. Dude, you got to go get it, man. You, you got to go. You got to make your appointment. Blah, 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 blah. I said, listen, dude, I'm in the best shape of my life, man. You know what I mean? I ran 12 miles this morning. I feel fantastic. And, uh, and you know, and of course, he is not in the best shape of his life, I could tell by looking at him. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, what are you, what are you so worried about? What are you worried about me for? And he's like, oh, well, uh, you know, I'm, 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 uh, 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 I'm concerned about your well-being. I said, yeah, well, I haven't fucking heard from you in like three and a half years, so you couldn't have been that conservative. <laughs> you, weren't, you haven't been checking in on me throughout the pandemic, you know? And so it's just uh, people are, you can tell who the people that are scared shitless are. I don't know if you saw Maddow's diatribe too. When, when the CDC released the guidance that we didn't have to wear masks, Maddow did this whole thing. So to pre- prepare yourself, it's going to be a completely visceral experience to see people without masks and life is going to be so different it's like no it's not life is going to be normal again you fool like this is what it was like beforehand you know the masks aren't normal we're not supposed to walk around scared shitless you know bowing to dr fauci and the government at all times that's not normal and she's making it seem like oh and now we're gonna do something really crazy we're gonna we're going to go shopping and go back to restaurants. You know, it's yeah. just we've lost our way. You, you know what? You know, but that what's that fascinates me from a human psychology standpoint, because it just illustrates and it highlights how influenced we are as human beings by our surroundings. Oh yeah. And the reason I say that, Chris, is because I've been on the west coast of Florida between Cape Coral and Naples for let's call it 2 months now, right? And when I first got to Naples, um I mean zero mass compliance. Zero. I mean, you go into their big grocery store there which is called Seed to Table, which is fantastic. You've got very few people. I mean, the uh, employees aren't even wearing masks. And I went to Idaho prior to that to visit my family in Sandpoint, and uh, zero mask compliance. I mean, the waitress, I mean, nobody, absolutely nobody. And I, my family members haven't left Sandpoint 
since this whole thing started in early 2020. And I was telling them about how it is, you know, and how you have to wear a mask on the plane and then the airport. And, you know, uh, it, 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 I was just in Tucson and that there people were extreme and wearing masks in their car and walking down the sidewalk and whatnot. They didn't believe me, Chris. They didn't believe me. There's like, no way. People aren't wearing masks in airports. Come on. They're like, no, people people aren't wearing masks walking around. They're, Why would you wear a mask? Like, huh? And now, <laughs> now in, in Florida, where I am, it the attitude with pretty much 90% of the population is like whenever you, you discuss uh, COVID or anything like that, people are like, what? Like, that's still a thing? Right. Like, why? I thought I thought we forgot about that a long time ago. Like, what? What's the? That's like a nothing burger, and it. But what's bizarre is that um, these people that have, to, you know, your friend as an example, have such an incredible fear of that, and it's a result. And maybe that's justified. I don't know. But what I am saying is that people's opinions are so heavily influenced by just what they see around them daily and they extrapolate what they see around them to how it must be not only everywhere in the United States but everywhere in the world and um, I, I think that's another reason why we need to look ourselves in the mirror every single day and ask ourselves if we are thinking critically, if we are keeping an open mind, and if we are allowing ourselves to be to get caught up in an echo chamber. Right. Whatever that echo chamber may be, it might be Austrian economics. Right. That right. might be your echo chamber. But you've got to try to continually poke holes in that, and you've got to ex- you've got to be open to other opinions and and respect other opinions if they're intellectually curious and intellectually honest you know some people are just blowhards but uh in 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 order to make sure that you're on your mental a game and that you're not uh allowing yourself to be influenced by things that uh may not be rational yeah well you have to consider the scope of ideas on anything on any mm-hmm. you know social right. problems, on investment yep. theses, you you can't make an informed decision unless you get all the cards on the table. And if you That's if right. your feelings are hurt just listening to someone else's opinion, if you are of the ilk, like I know some people that are, that your way or the highway, and not only that, which is fine, and I feel that way about a lot of things. You know what I mean. But the difference is I don't leave my house. I'm not, you know, infringing upon my friends, you know, my family, my people, what my views are, that they must feel the same way. Like my mother and I have have disagreements on a lot of things, um, social issues, for instance. And we discuss it. The argue, you know, the arguments get a little heated sometimes. Uh, it never gets crazy. There's no, there's no ad hominem. There's no, you know, we're able to to make our points. We make them passionately, and it always ends with we just don't agree, and that's okay because we don't always have to agree. And there's something to be said for that. But it's the people that that go out and feel as though they have to impose their line of thinking onto other people. 
because, you know, it's their job to save the world, to right all the ideological wrongs in the world. And they just ne- never occurs to them, well, like, oh, the people on the other side of the, their argument feel the same way. And so how do we avoid, you know, those two cl- trains crashing into each other at 100 miles an hour and instead try to come up with some type of constructive method to discuss these things and ask questions and have, you know, a Socratic dialogue where where we're going to arrive at best practices, all right? That's how, yeah. you know, auto the auto industry I, arrives at best practices. It tries a million things, and a bunch of different companies do a million different things, and eventually they whittle away at this, 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 and this, and those become the most efficient, the best practices, and we can do that ideologically too, but we have to have a forum for open discussion. We can't be censored, you know, and we have to be respectful with each other when we talk about it. And then from there, you know, we can we can hopefully whittle away at at ideologically what what best practices for for benefit of everybody, for quality of life of everybody, for the human race, for the world, right? Yes. I think if I could instill one view upon society uh, that I learned from probably my favorite economist of all time a gentleman by the name of Dr. Thomas Sowell. It's that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs for everything. Because in economics uh, or in life, we are dealing with scarce resources with alternative uses. You see, only trade-offs. There are no solutions. So if you look at that, if you look at any of these topics we've discussed through that lens, it allows people to open their mind and and open their ears and open themselves up to a different view because they understand that even their view comes with a cost-benefit analysis. There, there are no just perfect solutions, you see. And if there are no perfect solutions, then maybe I need to listen to that guy or gal over there that I think is crazy or I I think may have things wrong. Um, You know, again, if they're intellectually honest and kind of curious, because I understand that there are trade-offs and I need to understand what the costs are, not just what the benefits are. And I think that a perfect example of that are the and were the lockdowns you know and and the government intervention in and of itself right you know we we were not no one was doing a a cost benefit analysis they were only looking at the benefits oh god perceived perceived benefits right and if if we just nailed it right there they never did a cost benefit analysis they decided on one thing they identified the benefits and they said the perceived benefits. Yeah, I'm sorry, the perceived benefits, correct. And then it was full throttle in that direction, come hell or high water, you know. I mean, you Regardless remember having an aha moment? Damage. You remember having an aha moment last year where you're like, "Well, maybe this maybe this isn't worth what we're doing to the economy." Right? Like maybe this isn't worth it, right? Yeah, you know, on that note, and I, I want to go back to the uh, issue of, of free speech because I think that's very important. But as you know, most of my employees live in Medellin, Colombia. 
so when anyone's watching one of my whiteboard videos or anything like that, the editors are all in, in Colombia and Medellin. And the gal that does my accounting is there as well. Brilliant gal, very, very high intellect uh, in her late 20s. Most of her girlfriends are nurses at the local hospitals. All right. And uh, Medellin did a very strict lockdown, very similar to what they did in California. And uh, obviously they, they did that because they wanted to, uh, you know, lower the curve or whatever. They wanted to reduce the amount of people uh, that were getting sick so they didn't overwhelm the hospital system. Okay, we get it. Um, but what happened about a month ago is all of a sudden, and they really started to loosen most of the restrictions, but all of a sudden they started to tighten them again. And one weekend they said, okay, you cannot leave. We're we're locking you in your house again from, it was like Friday at noon till uh, Monday morning at seven or something like that. And then we might do it every weekend for the next month or two. And uh, I talked to the, this gal and my other employees. I said, well, why are they doing that? And they said, because the hospital system is getting very close to capacity again, and they just can't handle any more people getting sick. And I talked to the gal that works for me that has all the friends that work in the hospital system. And I said, what? So have the COVID cases just exploded again? And she says, no, it's not the COVID cases. I said, okay, well, what is it? She goes, it's the children. I go, the the children? How, How are they getting sick from COVID? I thought that they were in a group that really... Um, you know, is kind of uh, insulated from from it. And she says, no, it's it's not that they're getting COVID. She says, it's that they've been locked up in a cage right. for a year. Right. And now they're having all of these physical issues, all of these ailments, all of these mental issues that require them to go to the hospital. And the hospital is overwhelmed with children as a result of the lockdowns. See, that's the story that's never told by the media. Correct. And that is the example of exactly what Thomas Sowell teaches us and that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs and another perfect example of why we have to do a cost-benefit analysis, not only with what's happening with COVID, but everything that we do or consider moving forward. Yeah, and uh, along that vain let's talk about a cost benefit analysis of what we're doing to the economy and what we're doing to the dollar uh right right you know i just feel like i tweeted out yesterday in the midst of all of these meme stocks going nuts again <laughs> there's so much excess in the system you know billions and billions of dollars in you know bullshit cryptocurrencies and all these fraud companies that are worth zero that have you know multi-billion dollar market caps and you know you have companies like AMC and GME just going crazy and then I go on Instagram and I look at my friends that you know are not sophisticated investors who are just touting their gains in AMC and touting their gains in GameStop and and, you know, legitimately, people are making money off of it, too. But, I mean, it is pure hyper-speculation. Yeah, it's hysteria and it's speculation on crack. I mean, this isn't just, hey, we got a little bit of excess in the system. No, this is full-scale, 
you know, fucking snort a Red Bull and eat yeah. some cocaine and fucking, you know, just full on rave style. Take the drugs. I don't care. Just swallow it and get on the dance floor style hysteria. You know what I mean? Just ah, Tasmanian devil style. And so it's just uh, it's fascinating to watch. And what it screams to me is that there is too much liquidity you know, forget about the fact that there's no consequences anymore for fraud. All right, let's just cast that by the way. So that was like the, <laughs> that was like the first level of concern that we had like a decade ago, right? We're, we're past that. This is just this is a sign of too much liquidity. My friend said he just views Bitcoin as a liquidity buffer for the Fed. You know, it, Peter Schiff poo-pooed that argument when I uh, talked to him a couple of uh, days ago, but. But that's really what it is. It's just excess liquidity buffers for all of this hot money. There's hot money. And and I mean, it's just, I can't, I don't know how much more stagflation could be staring people in the face right now because you can't get anything. There's, you know, an overwhelming amount of demand for a diminishing amount of supply and mm-hmm. a labor force where everybody, that same sub shop I was just talking about, had you know a sign in the window, like many businesses yesterday, we're short staffed. Bear with us, you know. Nobody wants to work, right? If I didn't, if I wasn't already stuffed to the gills with shit to do, I would be going out and fucking taking these five hundred dollar sign up bonuses. I don't give a fuck. I'm not too proud not to pump gas. You know what I mean? I'll wash some fucking windows. I'll wash some dishes. I've done it before. I love it. I'll do it with a fucking smile. I'll be the happiest dishwasher on earth. But uh, but alas, I've already you know I've hit my productive capacity uh, limit. I'm I'm overclocked probably a little bit. <laughs> and so, what does this tell us about what's going on? And how does this? I mean, how does this end, man? Because um, and I know we've talked about this a lot, right? It, we mm-hmm. we know we think it ends with you know eventually things returning to some type of gold standard. I don't know if you saw the headlines out of Russia this morning too. Russia is dumping its dollar-denominated assets. It's investing in the pound and in gold. Um, you know, I read it, and I was like, well, feels like China might be next. I don't know. So, I mean, what do you make of the mess we're in right now? Do you see the the meme stocks as the same type of indication? I do. And I did a video yesterday where I just tried to put things into context. So I went over the headlines that you're referring to with these meme stocks. And <clears throat> I looked at a chart of the S&P 500 adjusted for inflation going back to the 1970s. And for your viewers who haven't looked at that chart, we hit a low right around, I believe it was the beginning of 1982, in which case the Buffett indicator, which is uh, market cap GDP, was just ridiculously low. And uh, you could, and it wasn't as low after the dot-com bust, and it wasn't as low after the, the GFC bust, but it, it, it comes down significantly. I think most of your viewers would remember back in 2009 and 2008, you know, the stock market went down by, was it 50, 60% in nominal terms, right? And back then, although we had huge intervention, we didn't have the fiscal intervention that we had today, and therefore we actually were able to have a, a, a somewhat healthy economy, or excuse me, a recession from the standpoint 
of getting all the excesses out of the system and not just building more excesses on top of the excesses that already existed. But if you go back and you think about if you were uh, trading, if you were Jim Grant starting the Grant's Interest Rate Observer back in the late 70s or early 80s, do you think that we had a lot of hysteria in stocks in 1982? You know, do you, or said another way, do you think we had a lot of this hysteria at the, at the, in 2002 or in 2009? I remember 2009 vividly. Uh, and there was anything but hysteria. And there this, was this is massive this panic. This is beyond I mean, hysteria, too. Was, You're doing it a disservice by calling it hysteria. Yeah, just hyperbolic uh, hysteria or, or you know, parabolic hysteria or whatever. But so my, my point is you don't see this at market bottoms. You don't see this when people should be buying. You see this at market tops. And, uh, you know, people can say, well, I'm going to go in and trade and do all this. I've got my eyes wide open. I understand that we're in a a market top, but I don't care. I'm going to go ahead and trade and see what I can do. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I totally respect that. Just so long as you understand what you're doing and the time frame you're, you're doing it in. What happens is so many of the average Joe and Janes they get caught up in this and they think that what they're seeing right now is a fantastic time to buy for the long run because everyone else is doing it. And what they don't understand is they are the sucker at the poker table. Now, I'm not saying that they can cash out or they can't cash out with more chips than they start with, but they are the sucker and they need to be cognizant of that. And, and very few people are. You know, I was in a clubhouse uh, little, I don't know what they're called, forum or whatever, chat discussion. And it was on uh, it was on Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, a lot of these maximalist guys and gals and whatnot. But there was one kid in there, a, a millennial kid, that had a fantastic point. And it really resonated with me. And he said, listen, he goes... You know, for a certain generation, they had the dot-com bust where they could come in and buy assets cheap. And for the next generation, they had the GFC where they could come in and buy stocks or real estate super cheap. I would say, you know, probably my generation. That's exactly what I did in 2012 you know that's when i got into real estate investing and i bought everything in sight because it was so damn cheap but he said with my generation we should have been able to buy things on the cheap in 2020 right and the fed and the fed and the government didn't allow us to so now the only thing we have to get ahead is crypto that's it because the fed and the government have taken everything else away from us for the sake of the baby boomers and the 1% that actually own the assets. And the kid had a fantastic point. And it just goes to show you that it's not just about the artificially low interest rates. It's also about quantitative easing. It's also about the Fed monetizing the debt and allowing the government to run these $5 trillion deficits 
and sends STEMI checks to everyone and their mother and increase the average income in the United States by 20% while the unemployment rate is, is through the roof just to prop up these asset prices, right? And, and therefore, yes, it's benefiting the group of individuals that already owns the assets, but it's hurting all of the, those kids and individuals that don't own any assets. Where does that lead you? That leads you into a massive problem with social unrest. And it takes you right into the fourth turning for the for your viewers who are familiar with, with uh, I believe Neil Howe is the gentleman who, who co-authored the book. And you see it playing out right in front of your own eyes. Now the problem here, among many other things, the main problem I would say, is that the Fed and the government have painted themselves into a corner where there is no way out other than through inflation. And when I say inflation, I'm talking about, let's get into specifics. I'm talking about consumer price inflation and I'm talking about asset inflation because those two are not synonymous. Most people think they are in the sense that if consumer price and uh, if consumer prices are going up, then assets are most likely going up as well. That is not true. In the beginning of the 1970s from 72 to 74, we had significant consumer price inflation, but the stock market went down by 50% in nominal terms. Right. Yep. But, but my point is the Fed and the government have painted themselves into this corner where they have to have consumer prices going up uh, to bail out the government. Which is so strange. They, they, that's they need so to pay odd. their debt back with cheaper dollars. That's the bottom line. And so that's why they need inflation. Now, whether they can achieve it or not is long term is a completely different topic, but that's what they need. And then you've got the other component now where that's much different than the 70s because you had a big sovereign deleveraging. In the 70s, I mean, if you look at the debt to GDP in 1968 or 69 compared to 1982, uh, it was much, much lower. I think it got even down to like 30% debt to GDP at a federal level in the early 1980s. But what's different about today is they not only need the consumer price inflation, they also need the asset inflation because they have created a system, an economy, if you will. I'm using that term loosely, <laughs> that is completely built on top of an asset bubble, of multiple asset bubbles, the everything bubble. And it's and it's predicated, its its existence is predicated upon those asset bubbles increasing in size, not even staying the same. You know, I did a whiteboard video that I think paints a very clear picture of how the system works now. I drew on my whiteboard a hot air balloon. And we've all seen them, you know, on a Sunday morning out in the country or something like that, where you've got this giant colored hot air balloon that's filled with uh, hot air, you know, helium, whatever they put into it, hot air, I guess it would be. And then at the bottom, you've got this little teeny weeny basket. And the basket, obviously, is gonna go wherever that hot air balloon goes. <laughs> it doesn't have a choice, right? And the way our economy should be, if we had a healthy, stable, uh, fundamentally sound economy, is the, the real economy, the production of goods and services, would be the hot air balloon. And the financial economy, 
the assets, the stock market, would be the basket. Correct. Right? But the way we have, and thanks to the Fed and the government, the way they've distorted things to such a degree that now it's the complete opposite. The financial economy, the stock market, the housing market, I, I, some may argue even crypto with Bitcoin. I think that was your earlier point with liquidity or soaking up the Fed's liquidity. That is the hot air balloon now. And the basket is the real economy. So the real economy is going to go wherever that balloon goes. And if you deflate the balloon and it goes down, so does that basket. It comes crashing down as well. For and it's it's hard for Americans to really envision this, but one another example I would give them is look at a country like uh, Colombia or Ecuador. You know, it's uh, one of these countries where I've spent quite a bit of time. Um, and if you ask yourself what would happen if the Colombian stock market went down by fifty percent, what would happen to the real economy? I can tell you what would happen. Zero. People wouldn't even know because they don't care because their lives don't revolve around the stock market and having to own assets to get ahead. Right. But in the United States, what would happen if the stock market went well, down be, and stayed down for 50 percent? It would be it, 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 we, it, would, it would be chaos. Yeah, it would, it be, would all, be hell on earth. That's right. That's right. Um, so, you know, when you're it, I think it, it's funny when people say, oh, I, I don't want to go to Colombia. You know, I don't want to go to one of those unstable third world countries. You're like, yeah. It, it, where they okay. actually, where they produce things, you know. Yeah, I don't think those people really realize that they're living in uh, a world that is levered to the hilt and highly unstable. And the probability of them being able to land this airplane perfectly on the runway is incredibly low and um, you know they're making it worse and worse and worse and I think that QE is a great example of what happens you know Schiff has a great way of describing the economy as a heroin addict and I don't know if I've ever heard a better analogy or a better way to describe the U.S. economy, in the sense that once you start giving, once that person becomes addicted to the drug, they need more and more of the drug to maintain this or to achieve the same level of high, right? But at a certain point, that drug is going to kill the addict. It's inevitable. And if you want that addict to become healthy, you've got to take away the drug. And if you take away the drug, there's going to be a hell of a lot of pain. But there's no way to avoid that pain. At some point, you are left with two really bad choices. You either take the pain or you die. That's it. And it's the exact same thing with the economy. The, the, the heroin is quantitative easing. The heroin is now fiscal deficit spending by the government and the economy is that heroin addict so it's just like with quantitative easing you know i think this is another point that Schiff made i'm trying not to gun lock him right <laughs> <laughs> peter I'm, I'm very cognizant of that my friend i want to give you all the credit you deserve and and uh and more but uh 
with with uh no i forgot where i was the analogy he was going to use but the main thing is this uh is how this economy is really oh i remember it, he talks about how ben bernanke when he first came out and announced quantitative easing he didn't say hey guys this is qe1 because we were only supposed to have one QE. Right. So he didn't have to attach a They were going to be able it. to put it back and everything was going right. to be fine. We're just going to pepper this in real quick. Then we'll undo it. And then, you know, nobody notices. Or yelling. It, or yelling. And, it, saying, and then, when says, like, then when Schiff says, oh, you know, there's a lot of moral hazard there. People say, oh, you're crazy, whatever. And he, here we are 10 years later, right? And the Fed's balance QE sheet infinity. is $9 trillion. And we're doing QE infinity. It's like, motherfucker, that's what he was warning about. You know, it's That's a right. slippery, slippery slope, especially if you're a dickless, spineless coward, right? Like, then, then the slope's even slipperier. But it's the heroin. You, you can't – you have to add more and more heroin. And now, unfortunately, uh, uh, for the sake of the economy and the average American, I think that we've gone from the economy needing quantitative easing to the economy now needing more than that in the form of government deficit spending and injecting the cash directly into the system. Because with quantitative easing, they're just increasing bank reserves. They're increasing base money. But it doesn't necessarily feed into broad money, right? They need the commercial yeah. banking system to actually create more dollars through additional loans. But now we've got this workaround with the government where the government is spending these trillions of dollars in deficit spending. They're issuing the bonds, but the bonds aren't being purchased at the end of the day by the uh, entities in the real economy, therefore sucking dollars out of the system and then putting those same dollars back in. Therefore, on net balance, the amount of dollars being created by the government action is, is zero, right? Um, but now you've got the Fed buying those bonds. How are they buying them? With newly printed or created bank reserves, newly created broad money, let's say. So now on net balance, you've got an increase in the broad money supply. And I think the market sniffed this out back in March of 2020 because remember that and I know you were watching the markets like a hawk back then. And if you recall, the Fed was supposed to meet on a Wednesday to, and this is when interest rates, I believe, were 1%, right around there, uh, to discuss. This is when they were scheduled to meet. But they had this emergency meeting on Sunday where they dropped interest rates down to 0%, if my memory serves me right. And they announced QE Infinity. They, they said that they were going to uh, lend or they were going to execute up to a trillion dollars a day in repo. And the market just shrugged it off. Yeah. Like, eh. Yeah, or no still going to go deal. down by a thousand points. The market only turned when the government came in and announced the CARES Act. And when so you go ahead, my point is, I think that now that's the heroin we need on top of and in addition to the quantitative easing, and that just distorts the economy uh, to a level that we probably can't even conceive and there's no way out for the government or the fed but to do more well and wait until we get fed coin and everyone has an account with the federal reserve and people are just getting right. cash directly because that is taking the heroin 
and lacing it with fucking fentanyl at that point. And that's when you're going to see the real chaos, the real destruction, you know, in Philly, the real K&A, right? The real fucking bad, bad scene. And it's not that far off. We can smell it. It's just right around the corner. And to circle back with something you just said to something that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, which is the people in charge don't really seem to know their ass from their elbow. And when are people going to figure that out? Janet Yellen made a comment in late May that, hey, it's it's important we don't get inflation ingrained in the system ingrained in the economy is what you said. I have the quote right here. This was the headline that crossed the Bloomberg terminal, and this was on May 27th. U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen, I agree that inflation should not become ingrained in the U.S. economy. It's like, hello, fucking anybody home? You know, like our entire monetary policy for decades has been based around inflation being necessary to operate you know i guess what she meant was uh out of control hyperinflation should not be ingrained in the system but how do you make a comment like that and it just goes back to what we talked it goes back as you would say to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast which is that you know these people they just don't know whether they're coming or going they don't know their ass from their elbow they couldn't hit sand if they fell off a camel you can use whatever whatever fucking uh analog you would like um but i think you know key to your point from earlier is step outside the box think yeah. critically personal responsibility which is why george i love listening to your podcast and i think it's made you such a success because i think there's more people out there than the mainstream media would let on and definitely you know the people we listen in we listen to uh, the outside the the mainstream sources uh would let on and it's just a shame we could go back to covid real quick and i'm gonna wrap things up here but sure, uh, sure. you know uh, one of my buddies who works at, well, not my buddy, but a journalist at the Wall Street Journal reached out to me like six months ago. So oh, we're considering doing a piece on people that got COVID right from the get-go. You know, who were the first uh, adopters, you know? And, and, I, and he was calling me because I had been early to speak about it. And I, you know, offered up all the other people because there were people before me too, Ben Hunt Absolutely. and Chris Martinson and yourself. Yeah. I mean, they're- And Eric Townsend too with Cor- Macro Voices. Yeah. Correctly, correct, correct. And, uh, and it just never came to fruition. It never materializes something. I thought, you know, I guess that didn't work for an article because it was such a good idea, you know, because it, it pointed out really where everybody else kind of lost their way. And uh, I don't know. It, it has nothing to do with me. But if you're a journalist, I'd encourage you to take a look at that because I think that'd be an interesting story. But George, listen, man, have a great time in Miami. I appreciate you so much taking an hour out of your morning today to talk to my listeners. They love you. I love you. We love Rebel Capitalist Pro. I love your forums over there at Rebel Capitalist Pro. I love to read over there. Even though I don't post much, uh, I'm constantly reading. Uh, I didn't give you your shout-out at the beginning, but if you want to oh, give a 30-second no pitch to my uh, to my listeners as to what Rebel Capitalist Pro is, because you are kind enough to support the podcast, this would be the time to do it. Oh, well, it's just an investment uh, forum that we have online with live streams and research from the actual pros. I'm merely an amateur. The pros in Rebel Capitals Pro are the amazing Lynn Alden 
and Chris McIntosh. So the research they do for their own investing or Chris's hedge fund, uh, that's available to subscribers on the forum. And then a lot of live streams where they can do Q&As with myself and Chris and Lynn. And uh, we might have some guest uh, Q&As in the, in the future. Uh, but that's what you can find at Rebel Capitalist Pro. And uh, to get there, you can just go to georgegammon.com forward slash pro. And I think my digital marketing guy has got a, a one dollar uh trial offer so you can just go and check it out george thank you so much brother i look forward to seeing you in person soon man it won't be long now and uh, i know my listeners love you your links are in my podcast description if they want to check it out and i appreciate you being generous with your time please remember us when you're famous on the qtr podcast please we we please <laughs> never stop coming back i will never stop coming back buddy i really enjoy our conversations all right talk to you soon george thank you again that was the one and only George Gammon, one of my absolute favorites. And just, I think, uh, I, I just, you know, the man deserves the success he's getting because he speaks clearly and uh, he's measured and he's got a good head on his shoulders. I got a bunch of great guests coming up over the next week or so. I appreciate my patrons so much for continuing to support the podcast. But for right now, I am the fuck out. Peace. <laughs>